When HIV appeared in the United States, it was a death sentence and a source of real fear. Now, with treatment, people living with the virus can live long and full lives. So why do laws still criminalize some actions of people living with HIV? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your total justice geek and nerd and your personal guide to our disordered criminal justice system. And still so, so happy with that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Before we get into the episode, we want you to think about becoming a member and a supporter of what we do here on Criminal Injustice. Go to our Patreon link at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice where you can join and get access to extra content like our special series on the criminal justice platforms of the 2020 candidates for president and much more. First 100 people to join get a signed copy of my book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science. Now let's think back, all the way back to the 1980s. Let's focus on a deadly disease that began to surface and began to result in deaths, thousands of them. The disease was called AIDS, and it was caused by the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV. It struck in the gay community particularly hard and also killed people using intravenous drugs. All of this because of shared bodily fluids that carried the infection. It even hit people who happened to receive infected blood transfusions. There was no evidence that the virus spread through other, more casual kinds of contact, but the evidence was no match for the great fear the disease inspired, and that fear spread quickly. Eventually, fear found a place in the sphere of laws and lawmaking. States began to enact legislation that punished people criminally for spreading HIV to others through sexual contact or otherwise. If a person who knew he or she had HIV had sex with someone without telling the partner that they were HIV positive, it was considered a crime. In most places, it wasn't even a defense that they might have taken preventive measures, like using a condom. There were some truly horrific cases of deliberate infection of others, but this kind of enforcement wasn't limited to those cases, and enforcement wasn't unusual. Now, fast forward to the last 10 or so years. Medical care and treatment for HIV and AIDS has advanced remarkably. There is medication for people who have the virus that can keep the virus at bay, perhaps forever, allowing people to live long and almost normal lives. There are even preventive medications. But despite these dramatic advances, the laws have not changed. People are still being prosecuted under the old laws criminalizing actions by people with HIV. And this kind of criminal enforcement, even now, isn't that unusual. Take a listen to this. A Bristol man is in jail tonight, charged with knowingly spreading HIV to two other people. Tonight, one of those victims is speaking out exclusively. A Baldwin County man who was arrested for spreading HIV pleaded guilty to the crime last week. 
Captain Brad King with the Sheriff's Office tells us Robert Wayne Stevenson pleaded guilty to four counts of felony Facing a number of charges, one of them HIV assault on a law enforcement officer. According to this search warrant, the 47-year-old is accused of being HIV positive and biting a police officer. Investigators tell us this happened that late. That audio comes from reports from WMGT Television in Georgia, Fox 2 Television, and WTKR Television in Virginia. So what's the state of the criminal law today concerning people with HIV? Given medical changes, are those laws and the views they are based on still valid? If not, what should change? We have two guests here today who can help us understand where we are and how the criminal law should respond. Jada Hicks is a staff attorney at the Center for HIV Law and Policy. Before she joined the center, she served as an inaugural judicial fellow for the administrative office of the courts in North Carolina, providing independent and confidential legal research and writing support to the more than 370 judges who comprise North Carolina's superior and district courts. Prior to that, she served as an assistant district attorney for the Pitt County, North Carolina District Attorney's Office, prosecuting cases ranging from drug offenses to DWIs. Amir Sadegi is the National Community Outreach Coordinator for the Center for HIV Law and Policy. Prior to joining the center, he worked as assistant to Dr. Chiara Bodici, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research, where he earned his master's degree in philosophy. He also teaches debate and public speaking with the Rikers Debate Project at the detention facilities on Rikers Island, New York. Jada Hicks and Amir Sadegi, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. I'm so glad you're both here. Now, let's just take it back in time and start with some basic facts. Uh, back to the 1980s, when HIV first started to show up in the United States, what kind of numbers of people infected and dying were we seeing? Was it really the lethal disease that we think about now, and what were the predominant public beliefs about the disease, whether they were true or not? Amir, why don't we start with you? Sure. It, thank you. It, it was lethal for many, in part because so many people had likely been living with HIV long before it started to appear in concerning numbers, and because it manifested through diseases that were uncommon for young people who were showing up with Kaposi's sarcoma and PCP, which is a form of pneumonia. Um, the first reported cases happened, started to come in in 1981, but there were treatments for PCP, which was a major cause of death in those early days. And there are a number of long-term survivors with us today who have been living with HIV since the 1980s. At the same time, with current therapies um, allowing even long-term survivors to live into old age, Many are dealing with a range of related issues. Still, a person diagnosed today is likely to have a lifespan um, roughly equivalent to those who are not living with HIV and longer than people with some serious chronic diseases. So, you know, first things first, I think it's important to remember that a lot of the reaction to the disease was fueled by homophobia. A mysterious disease was affecting a mysterious stigmatized community of gay men. Women were also affected and dying in the 1980s, and in New Jersey, the majority of early cases appeared to be among intravenous drug users and people who were hetero-identified. So 
people made a lot of stigma-informed, you know, hysterical assumptions Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. roots and risks of transmission. A case in point would be mosquitoes. But the truth is that during the 80s, there were studies showing that even in households where there were children with HIV sharing toys and biting each other and sharing toothbrushes, transmission wasn't happening. So there were a lot of mistaken beliefs that contributed to the climate of fear, but you also had most public health officials behaving responsibly in terms of, quote, disease control. In 1986, the United States Surgeon General C. Everett Koop wrote his famous letter to the American public about HIV, about how it is and isn't transmitted. Those people worked against uh, the fears and the panic, and they Mm -hmm. were forces against that. That's right. I remember uh, Dr. Koop doing this. I mean, it was a, considered a real, a real heroic act on some level. I mean, he was a real truth teller uh, throughout his uh, tenure as Surgeon General, and this was one of the signal incidents of that, wasn't it? Right. And, and you know, during a Republican administration, no less. Yes. Um, that, that fear, though, was palpable. It was based on mistakes and misinformation, but it was real. And, and because of that fear that was out in the public's mind, really some terrible things happened to some individual people. Well, one in particular, maybe, that you're thinking of would be Ryan White. Who, he was a teenager yes. in Indiana who was a hemophiliac. And he underwent a blood transfusion before the rigorous screening process that exists today. HIV and AIDS was then a disease predominantly affecting the gay community, and the deep homophobia that saturated American life is inseparable from the stigmatization of the virus um, and inaction by policymakers to provide care and resources for people affected by the epidemic. Absolutely. In the wake wake of Ryan White's death, Congress enacted the Ryan White Care Act the largest uh, federal program for people living with HIV and AIDS. And it also conditioned federal funding on whether states could prove that they had a criminal law to prosecute people who intentionally exposed another person to HIV. So part of that hysteria and that climate of fear, but also forces working against that, public health officials calming that panic and updating the public about the roots and risks of transmission. But, you know, then you have that other side with policymakers enshrining into law stigma against people living with HIV. And, you know, these are laws disproportionately affected already marginalized people and people who are generally more likely to face discrimination under the law and prosecuted more frequently, including people of color, LGBTQ people, particularly trans people living with with HIV. So it's that federal law, the Ryan White law, that really kind of starts the ball rolling on some of these changes to the criminal law. Let's talk about that. Uh, What kind of changes in the law with that fear, even with the public health officials speaking out uh, and telling people, no, no, you don't have to fear that. Uh, there are ways that we can work on this problem. Even with that, the, the fear begins to seep into lawmaking at the state level. Can you talk about that, Jada? Yes, and so I'd like to start um, because a lot of people wonder what actually HIV criminalization even means. Um, and so I'd like to start with just a brief definition of that so that everyone understands what we're even discussing right now in the podcast. So HIV criminalization is the arrest, 
prosecution and imprisonment of people living with HIV for things that are perfectly legal or would only be minor crimes for people not tested positive. So in other words, your HIV status is used as a standalone basis to single um, a person living with HIV out for unique and discriminatory treatment by our criminal legal system. Um, and so what we start to see, um, there were a few states that enacted HIV-specific laws prior to the Ryan White Care Act. Um, but I think it was only three, and then we really saw once um, funding was conditioned that all, most states started making these laws. And what we see is them not requiring an intent to cause harm. And so I think that was something that was really shocking for me. I come from a, a background as a prosecutor. And so mm-hmm. most of the times when people think about laws and how the prosecutor has to prove their case, they think about an intent to cause harm or a conscious desire to cause harm. That's right. Most I mean, I, cases, as a yeah. person who teaches criminal law, I can tell you that's everything. I mean, you know, it's very unusual to find criminal statutes that aren't connected to some kind of harm, usually through the intention to do it. Right, exactly. And so um, coming from my background, background, I was a little you know, baffled when I started learning more about HIV criminalization that most of the time um, in these jurisdictions, there's not even an intent to harm that's required. And so what we see the homophobia and stigma that Amir was talking about and addressing, um, we see that really playing a role in how the laws are written. Um, you know, the first laws that were on the books were really all it took was you're living with HIV you don't disclose to the other individual and you engage in sex and that's it. That's all it took. There wasn't an intent to harm. They didn't require any sort of transmission. Um, they didn't take into account whether a person was on medication and virally suppressed, which means they couldn't even transmit the disease if they wanted to. So, um, so, the, so let me just ask, it sounds like you're saying that even for people who would not expect to be transmitting disease, as long as they failed to disclose that was the nut of the crime if they were having sex with anyone. Correct. That's totally correct. And we really saw that when these laws were first on the books, but we still see um, the same basis and not requiring an attempt in a majority of jurisdictions um, to this day. And so They've just been on the book, and they have not been updated since then and since our knowledge. um, And, you know, the medical field has come a long way, and our knowledge about the roots and risks of transmission have as well regarding HIV, but the law just has not caught up yet. So the law is really the same now in most of these places as it was in those early times when they were passing these statutes back in the 90s? So we've seen a few states that have reformed. But the majority of them have not. And even in some states where they have reformed, the laws have actually gotten worse. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, every state has a different definition of infectious or communicable disease or how they define sexual conduct or sexual contact. Um, And so some of these states, as they've reformed, have actually broadened the definition. Um, And what that means is that a group of people that would not have been subjected to prosecution previously, now, under the doom definition, they're subject to prosecution. Um, we also see certain types of sexual behavior being incorporated that we now know you can't transmit that way. Um, in fact, Ohio is an example that I, that I love to point out just because I think it really exemplifies kind of this fear and driving the laws that we're talking about. Uh-huh. In Ohio, explain that, yeah. 
so in Ohio, even if you use a sex toy, um, because it, it talks about a slight um, penetration, and so that's not defined in the statute. So even the use of a sex toy by someone living with HIV could subject them to prosecution, which is just crazy to really think about. There's no way that you're going to transmit to someone by using a, a sex toy. So even in today, to, let's just back up. The The medical context has changed radically uh, in the last, Correct. what is it, 10, 15 years. Um, we've now got PrEP, uh, which uh, is a medication you can take to prevent any infection from happening at all. We've got numerous other kinds of medication that you can take if you have the virus that will suppress it to a degree that uh, you're not likely to develop any any active disease at all. Even with that, the laws are the same as back in the bad old days or maybe even worse. In the majority of states, I will. I want to be clear that a few states have reformed, um, California being one of them. Um, and they have a great bill that they passed um, that really kind of is the, you know, the gold standard that people talk about in terms of what we want to see incorporated into legislation. Um, but the vast majority of these jurisdictions, they haven't updated their laws. Um, and I, we actually have on our website um, HIV lawandpolicy.org, we have a criminalization map in the United States that highlights which states have reformed. Um, so we've got seven states that have reformed. It also talks about a breakdown of how um, HIV is criminalized throughout the United States. So whether it's an HIV-specific criminal law, whether there are certain um, sentencing enhancements for people living with HIV, or whether they um, people living with HIV are prosecuted under the general criminal code, which is still um, something that can happen within these States. Right. The, the map is a great resource. We'll put a link to it up on our website so everybody who wants to can go and see it. So uh, with these different kinds of criminalization, uh, where you've got sentencing enhancements uh, and where, they, uh, where the individual crime itself just depends on non-disclosure. Without, do, and there's no defense for using a condom. There's no defense for, I was immunosuppressed. As long as you had sex and didn't tell, that's the core of it. And with these laws on the books, are we seeing actual prosecutions? Does that still happen? Yes, we're definitely still seeing prosecutions. You know, obviously, we see um, a few jurisdictions where they have more prosecution than others, but we're definitely seeing them throughout the country. And we actually we track that here at CHLP, and we have an arrest and prosecutions chart that we update um, whenever we find something that's being reported in the news. Um, so we try and keep that up to date just to kind of get a national perspective of what's going on in regard to HIV criminalization throughout the United States. And that's a good resource as well. We'll have a link, of course, to the center's website, and people will be able to find that. You know, it strikes me that uh, as people investigate what we're talking about, if they take a look and just just cruise the web, they'll find a lot of stories, news stories of all kinds, as, as I did as I was doing my research for talking to you folks about this. And there are stories out there about people who have multiple sex partners and never disclose that they were HIV positive to any of them and infect some of them. Sometimes it's wives or girlfriends, but often it's just people they've met and hooked up with. I think it's going to strike a lot of people as, well, those people have done something wrong. The law's got to respond to that. What would you say to that? 
So we are not saying that those, um, and I think those cases are usually outliers, right? So I think the media has um, this obsession really with HIV exceptionalism. You're not going to see a case um, really in print that isn't sort of a sensationalized depiction of HIV. And so um, something that we stand by at uh, CHLP, so we have a set of guiding principles that we use when we are working with state coalitions to draft legislation um, and for the elimination of these disease-specific criminal laws. And so part of that is not saying that someone that intends to transmit and when transmission occurs, we're not saying that they shouldn't be punished. Um, We're saying that those individuals should be subject to prosecution, but that we really need to put restrictions on how we're criminalizing disease status. And we also need to be um, remembering and cognizant of the fact that sexual responsibility needs to be on both individuals, right? Um, So it shouldn't just be on the HIV positive individual. It should also be on the other person as well. Um, and so in what sense do you mean that? What should the, the non-HIV person do? I think they both have a responsibility to protect themselves. And so for, for individuals, that means engaging in sexual intercourse and using condoms, making sure they take preventative steps. Um, and so part of those guiding principles is basically that the prosecution has to prove specific intent, um, that Specific intent has to be coupled with conduct that's reasonably likely to accomplish the intended harm. Um, That the defendant didn't take any sort of risk reduction measures. And what I mean by that is that they didn't use condoms, that they weren't on medication and virally suppressed. Um, And also that transmission occurred. And so those individuals would still be subject to prosecution. I see. Even under um, the guiding principles that we use. When you have in a statutory code, that the only affirmative defense to prosecution is disclosure, as they were saying, private conversations between individuals can be incredibly hard to prove in court. So while you may see some sensationalized media reports, it really just doesn't happen. The data isn't there to support that that happens that often. And, you know, maybe someone did disclose, maybe someone can't prove that. How do you prove a private conversation um, in court? It, it, it really turns into a they said, he said situation, which is why having that as the only sole defense to prosecution is part of one, you know, the many reasons why these laws conflict with the longstanding legal notion that we only prosecute people who intend to harm others. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Amir Sadegi and Jada Hicks of the Center for HIV Law and Policy. We're talking about the ways in which HIV status is criminalized. Stay with us for more of this conversation. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. Josh, the producer here. Dave is uh, still on tour in support of his brand new book, A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law in Police Confrontations. I wanted to give you a quick update on the book tour as new dates have been added to the list. Here's the current schedule for appearances planned in the next couple of months. 
As we mentioned, on February 13th, Dave will be speaking at Philadelphia's Parkway Central Free Library. It starts at 6 p.m., continues to about 8. Later this month in Coral Gables, Florida, on the 27th, he's speaking at Books and Books from 8 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Heading into March, more new dates added for Cincinnati, Ohio, at the Mercantile Library, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And then on March 27th in Toledo, Dave gives the Henry Hartman MD Memorial Lecture. Keep an eye on acitydivided.com for new dates as they're added to the lecture tour, but we'll try to keep you posted on the podcast as well. Again, Philly on the 13th, Coral Gables, Florida, February 27th, Cincinnati, March 16th, and Toledo on March 27th. Back to the show. Hi, everyone. David Harris here for Criminal Injustice, and we're talking about the criminalization of people living with HIV. Um, We were just uh, uh, talking about the way that criminal law is used or maybe should be used if we were to get the right kind of laws in place. And let me just throw out this question. When we talk about uh, living with HIV being stigmatized, um, the the question probably arises in a lot of people's minds, well, what about other sexually transmitted diseases? I mean, how, for instance, would the law treat somebody who did not tell a sexual partner that they had an STD of any kind that would, you know, be medically treatable but still would be a disease? So I think that's a great question, and I I actually think that a common misconception is that HIV is the only disease that's criminalized, and it's just not true. So there are actually a number of laws on the books um, where disease-specific legislation is criminalized, but typically we're going to be seeing misdemeanors to either uh, engage in sex or to expose another person to a communicable or serious infectious disease. Now, which STIs is going to be criminalized, it really varies widely based on the state. So there's kind of this confusing patchwork of laws from state to state in terms of, you know, what STIs or what other diseases are going to be criminalized. So we do see some similarities between HIV criminalization and the criminalization of other diseases. Um, For starters, most of these laws had a common motivation in the beginning for why they were written to begin with. Um, And, you know, we go all the way back to World War II and men returning from the war or women returning from the war and the fear of um, spreading STIs. They were really created at that time and just sort of kept on the books since then. Um, One of the major differences that we see is typically when you hear about HIV criminalization, it's in a criminal court. Other diseases, you know, I, I know I personally have heard of herpes in the news, and that's really enforced the civil court where someone is going to be suing for a specified amount of damages. Um, and then what we also see is that typically these other diseases, the penalty level is only in misdemeanor, whereas for HIV, the majority of um, convictions result in felony level punishment. So, you know, we're not typically going to see the heterosexual majority prosecuting individuals for a disease that a majority of the population has, right? So you don't hear a lot about uh, prosecutions for, say, chlamydia um, or for gonorrhea. Uh, you don't really hear about that in the news. And no, so you don't. Also, right. This, this idea that, you know, the stigma and maybe homophobia and transphobia that is attached to HIV, um, 
results in more prosecutions under those statutes as well. So with that, I mean, it prompts me to ask what's going on in individual states. And one of the things that I found among the resources that you guys have, um, the Williams Institute uh, produced, and that's at UCLA School of Law, by the way, they produced uh, a number of different reports. It's third one, we'll just focus on that one, uh, which you have up on the website, uh, is about Florida. Uh, What were the major findings as they focused on one state, this time Florida? Uh, What did they find there? So some of the major findings were that there were significant disparities in the enforcement and those in the enforcement of HIV criminal law. And those disparities relate to a person's race or sex at birth or sex sex worker status or their geography, which county they're located in, um, in Florida. And this report is intended to inform legislative decision-making um, in the state to reform the law, to modernize the law, and, and, and have it reflect current understandings about the virus, how it is not a death sentence anymore, how it's a manageable chronic disease. But still in Florida, for example, um, actual transmission is not required for prosecution, and neither is um, a substantial uh, transmission risk or conduct that poses a a substantial risk of transmission. But some of the key takeaways were that women in Florida are more likely to be arrested for an HIV criminal offense. Women are more likely. Women are more likely to be arrested for an HIV criminal offense. They account for over half of the individuals arrested for an HIV-related offense, but women only account for 27% of people living with HIV in Florida. So they are already overrepresented. overrepresented. Yeah, disproportionately right. so. And, but in HIV and STD offenses involving sex work, black women were significantly more likely to be convicted for a disease-specific offense and were significantly less likely to be released without a conviction than all other groups. Sex sex work incidents were twice as likely as other exposure incidents to result in a conviction for an HIV or STD offense, and half as likely to result in individuals being released without a conviction. Basically, Florida is waging a war on sex workers, and one of the tools in the arsenal of that war is the criminalization of HIV. 60% of all HIV-related criminal incidents occurred under the law that targets people living with HIV engaged in sex work. How interesting is that? So this uh, uh, idea of criminalizing people living with HIV actually gives us a window into a whole set of other law enforcement priorities. It's what uh, what we always uh, find when we dig hard enough uh, at some of the realities of the criminal justice system. We find so many things tied together, race, gender, employment status, whatever it is. Uh, it's usually about targeting some significant stigmatized group. So I understand from some of your work that there might be some action in Florida in the legislature. Talk about that. Yes, and before I get to that, there's one more thing that I wanted to add that I think factors in and that's often forgotten is really socioeconomic status. So Uh 
when you think of the type of sex work that is being criminalized, right? Like you, you're not really seeing them criminalize uh, maybe like escorts, higher end escorts. Really what we're seeing is men and women that are engaged in sex work to survive. That is how they survive day to day. Um, and we often hear stories uh, about how sex work um, is used to help them pay their rent even, just to get by. Um, and those are the people that are really bearing the brunt of prosecutions in Florida. And so Florida has just introduced um, just a few days ago, actually, some new legislation. So I think one of the most concerning pieces is, you know, Amir referenced the Williams Institute report and gave you some great statistics from it about how these HIV criminal laws affect our already disenfranchised population. So we see that sex workers are, are bearing the brunt of this. Um, and they're going to continue to under the new legislation. So basically in Florida, you know, prostitution is already illegal. That's already a crime. Yes. Um, and it's, it's typically a misdemeanor, right? And so if you engage in sex work and you simply are a person that is living with HIV, that automatically results in a felony charge. And that you don't even have to have sexual contact occur for that to happen. It can be merely soliciting someone to engage um, in some sort of sex act. So I think it's important for people to keep that in mind. So imagine that, you know, there's an undercover sting and a, and a cop is um, speaking to a sex worker. If that sex worker makes an agreement with the cop, that's enough right there. No contact has to occur. And if she's living with HIV, she could be hit with a felony charge just for that. So what would be a misdemeanor offense uh, automatically becomes a felony for somebody because of their HIV status alone. That's what you're saying? Yes. Yes. And so I think it's important that when we have this data, we really need to use that to inform our legislation. So when we look at the Williams Institute report, you know, that should really be what shapes the legislation. And I think there are a few, um, there are some improvements to the law in the legislation that has been introduced. It does require specific intent. Um, it does also require transmission, I believe. Um, however, there's still going to be felony level punishments for organ and blood donation, which in this day and age is just Ridiculous. I think Amir already mentioned we have a very rigorous process for screening blood, organ, and tissue donations. Right. That's been in so, place for many, many years, too. Right. And so there isn't going to be a case, you know, back when the epidemic first started, there, there were cases of transmission, um, transmission resulting from, you know, as, as with Ryan White, from a blood transfusion or from an organ donation. Um, and so that was a concern then, but it is not a concern now. Um, and so why we are still having so many levels of punishments for blood and organ donation, really, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you've also still got a felony for a subsequent uh, conviction. So if someone is convicted in Florida of HIV exposure, if they then have a second or subsequent conviction under the legislation that's been introduced, that will also result in a felony. And I think the thing that is concerning about that is we already know from the Williams Institute report that sex workers are still going to carry the burden of um, being over-criminalized to HIV laws in Florida. And so we're going to see that it guarantees they get felony convictions, right? So if you have one conviction, it'll be a misdemeanor. If you have a second or subsequent 
um, that will be a felony. And for sex workers where that is their livelihood, that's how they live, that's how they get by from day to day, uh, we also know they have, in general, more contact with law enforcement. Yes. Well, you know, this leads into, uh, I think, maybe the, the final question I'd like to throw at you both. Um, you know, knowing what the problems are out there, having seen some progress, as you said, Jada, in a few states, uh, some perhaps some backsliding in others, um, going forward, if you were summoned uh, or invited, I should say, to the legislature of any <laughs> state USA, what would you tell them their laws should look like? What's, the, what's a good law in your mind? How would you change what's right. out there? So one thing that I, I, I actually would like to reference that um, in regards to Florida and other states that do this as well, before I jump into, you know, dream legislation would be that Florida also has, um, and other states have this as well, a mandatory testing provision for if you're convicted of certain offenses. So if you're convicted of prostitution or, uh, excuse me, if you're convicted of prostitution or solicitation, you have to undergo, undergo mandatory testing. So what that means is at that point, you have knowledge of your status. And if there is a subsequent arrest, you can't deny that you knew your status and the prosecutor right. is going to have access to that information. It really makes the prosecutor's job. It's like handing it to them, right? Like, here you go. Here's your conviction. Mm -hmm. Here's when we tested them. And here's when we told them that they were positive. So I think one of the things would be not to require mandatory testing um, if it's going to then be used in a prosecution against, against an individual. Um, Definitely for the Positive Justice Project, with the guiding principles we have, we really push for no disease or condition-specific criminal law. We push for no sentence enhancements. And what I mean by sentence enhancements, in certain states, um, take Missouri, for example. If an individual is incarcerated, there is a crime alone, not based on your disease status. If you spit on a corrections officer or if you toss feces of urine, anything like that, that's a crime. However, if you're a person living with HIV or viral hepatitis, it's an automatic felony. And we know that tossing urine and feces does not transmit, um, yet we're still giving them that felony enhancement. So we don't think that there should be any sentence-level enhancements based on someone's specific disease or condition. Um, that the prosecution must prove specific intent. So there has to be an intention or a desire to transmit um, and there also has to be conduct that's likely to result in transmission. So there has to be a substantial likelihood. And what that means is we're really updating the law so it reduces in risk of transmission. So, um, you know, a lot of times oral sex will be criminalized in states. And so we know that that transmission is not occurring because of oral sex. And so that would be something that we would be aiming to tackle with, with that piece of the legislation. Um, we'd also like to introduce more defenses for a defendant that is charged. So disclosure is exceedingly difficult to prove in court. I really would challenge everyone to think about, you know, if you've had a sexual relationship with someone, think about how you could prove in court that you disclosed to them. What would you do to prove that in court? Um, and, and is it more than just, well, I told them and it's just my word and you have to believe it. Um, it's just a very difficult defense for defendants to prove, and it really, it leaves the burden on defendants when it shouldn't be. And so what we'd like to see is obviously disclosure would be a defense, but still seeing that if um, an individual that's charged took steps to reduce transmission, that it would show that they didn't have specific intent to transmit. So 
if they wore a condom or if they were on medication or if they were virally suppressed, that there would not be that intent to transmit. Um, and obviously that lack of those things also doesn't mean that that specific intent is there. The prosecutor would still have to prove that. Absolutely. Um, on your question of mandatory testing after being arrested for various things, um, mandatory testing would help a person know if they didn't already that they were positive. What about if you mandatory tested people, excuse me, mandatorily tested people, but that couldn't be used in a subsequent prosecution? It was only a matter of health information. Would that work for you? I think that's something to think about, but I really think the question that you should be asking is, what is the purpose of mandatory testing, right? It should be much more than just to tell a person their status. It should also be to connect them to care. Absolutely. And so if we have someone that's struggling with either homelessness or, you know, engaging in sex work to pay their bills and unstable income or or housing situation, if you are telling them their status and that's it, you're not connecting them to care, um, helping them to get their medication, it really doesn't do a lot. Then they know their status and they don't actually have any steps to take to help them deal and manage their chronic conditions. So I think the real question is, instead of focusing on mandatory testing, we really should be focusing on connecting these individuals to care. And how do we do that? How do we implement that? Because that's really what the public health goal is in the first place. Absolutely. Right? And yeah, and those things are really important. They're sort of separate, I think, from questions of criminalization, but they are very important to the people in the population who have and have to live with the disease. Yes. And, and so I think that's a concern that maybe, um, you know, should be at the, at the forefront of this movement. How do we do that? And, and really another thing is how do we make any sort of penalties that we enforce proportionate to the harm? And so I think that goes with what we were talking about earlier. And, you know, if someone specifically intends to transmit and transmission occurs, should they be punished? And they should, but the level of punishment should be proportionate to the harm. And because HIV today is a manageable chronic disease and, and the excessive levels of penalties just don't match up with that, how they look in the law. One, for example, if I had to think about in legislation, would be to repeal the sex offender registration that exists in six different states, six different states require that a person convicted for um, exposure or transmission of HIV to register as a sex offender. And these are, you know, people who are convicted for having consensual sex with somebody. But because there's a law in their state that says that, well, you expose somebody to HIV without disclosing, even though, as we noted, disclosure is incredibly hard to prove in court, Um, Or, you know, in states, people who might be virally suppressed and might have taken preventative measures to to prevent transmission, they could still be registered as a sex offender for having consensual sex. So that's something that is just it's fundamentally wrong and needs to go. And I think something to add on to Amir's point um, and just to highlight and really drive home what he's talking about, is you know, in Tennessee, If you were to solicit someone to engage in prostitution, again, no sexual contact has to occur. You could be convicted of aggravated prostitution and still have to register as a sex offender. 
even though you don't engage in sexual contact. My guests have been Amir Sadegi and Jada Hicks. They are, respectively, National Community Outreach Coordinator and Staff Attorney for the Center for HIV Law and Policy. We'll put a link to the organization up on our website, along with links to a number of the different pieces of material we've talked about today. Thank you both for being my guests on Criminal Injustice. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, which comes to us via the Oklahoman and the ever-trusty ABA Journal News Online, concerns lawyer Julie Izell from Oklahoma. When this story began, lawyer Izell had the job of general counsel to the Oklahoma State Department of Health. In that job, as one would guess, she gave legal and perhaps some policy advice to the department and its board. The trouble that got lawyer Ezel tangled up began not with the department itself, but with Oklahoma voters, who had the temerity to go ahead and approve the use of medical marijuana in the state in June of 2018. Under the approval of this change by those voters, the State Department of Health would need to issue rules and regulations for how the process would work. Two of these rules in particular caught the attention of lawyer Ezell, one on whether smokable forms of marijuana should be offered, and another on whether every medical marijuana dispensary should have to have a pharmacist on staff. Lawyer Izell wanted restrictive regulations on this whole process, and she and the department's board disagreed on these regulations. Lawyer Izell told the department's board that it might even be exceeding its authority if it ignored her advice. The board of the Department of Health did not seem persuaded by lawyer Izell's advice, so Izell decided she needed more evidence that she was right. So she went out and did some legal research and found more evidence. No, she didn't. Instead, she decided to send some fake threatening emails to herself, posing as an angry medical marijuana supporter, opposing the more restrictive regulations that lawyer Ezell wanted. The idea was apparently to show the board that the regulations she wanted were necessary because of dangerous people like those threatening her via email. Just to give listeners a flavor, one of the emails, which included some incorrect spelling, just to give it that real authentic flavor of villains everywhere, which I guess they just can't spell, said, quote, We will stop you and your greed any way it takes to end your evil and protect what is ours. We will watch you, close quote. Another email said, quote, you impose laws like a dictator and respect none of them, close quote. Yeah, good. Fake emails, always a good tactic, and people never get caught doing things like this. Well, the fake emails led to a state 
criminal investigation, during which some additional messages, they were text messages, were found on lawyer Ezel's phone from the head of the Oklahoma Professional Association for Pharmacists, telling Ezel that if she could succeed in getting a rule in place requiring medical marijuana dispensaries to have a pharmacist on staff, she Ezel, that is, would have a job waiting for her after she left government. There was no evidence that this ever went anywhere. The upshot here? The department went ahead with its own regulations, despite Ezel's advice not to, and then ended up reconsidering them. But that is just the stuff of democratic governments everywhere. The upshot for lawyer Ezel was really not so good. The criminal investigation uncovered her fake threatening emails to herself, and she ended up resigning her job and pleading guilty to two misdemeanors. She has had to pay restitution of over $21,000 to the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, and she'll be on probation for five years, and the convictions will disappear if she stays out of trouble during her probation. No word yet, as this is recorded on whether the Oklahoma bar authorities have taken an interest, but I'm betting that they will. But if they do start investigating and make moves toward pulling lawyer Izell's license, do you think we might see some more threatening emails popping up somewhere from some angry anonymous person? That is Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that's it for this episode of Criminal Injustice. Remember to subscribe to Criminal Injustice so you can always get us in your favorite podcast app every time and never miss an episode or any of our news bonuses or another story of lawyers behaving badly. Remember, we're now listener-supported. Please go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. I am David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Every year, courts hand out sentences of life without possibility of parole to people convicted of serious crimes. Our guest was one of those people, and he'll tell us what that was like. And with his sentence commuted, what his life is like now on the outside after 43 years. That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Podcast.com.